Anyway, I'm glad that you are all here. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? The ushers will get them to you. Um, and if you have your Bible, would you, would you take it on out? I'll tell you, this has been a, a special week this week. Anybody ever been stretched? Anybody ever been stretched? And there's two types of stretch, stretching. There's the stretching that happens when we overburden ourselves with things that God doesn't want us to do. That produces stress. Right, But then there's the stretching where we let God use us in ways in which we don't even know how we're going to get it done. And that produces an increase of the supply of the Spirit in your life because it causes you to be dependent upon God. And that's the kind of week that I had. I had a, had a week where God supplied, and I'm so grateful for God's goodness. Anyway, hold your Bible up nice and high. Say this with me. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all God has destined me to be. Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? Um, we are going to 2 Timothy chapter number 3 as we continue in our series following Jesus in today's world. 2 Timothy chapter number 3 beginning in verse 1 says, But know this, that in the last days, the times that we are living in right now, perilous times or evil times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, and notice this phrase, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. From this text, I want to minister to you from the subject, you can control yourself. Let me say it again. Because this is, this is something this world needs to hear. You can control yourself. The world has lied to us. Even Christians believe that, well, you know, I, I just have these, these habits and these hangups and, you know, the pull is so real and the pull is so strong and, you know, I, I just, I can't, you know, I want to, but I can't. You can control yourself. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit to every heart? Would you help us to understand that we indeed have the spirit of the living God on the inside of us and therefore the fruit of the spirit, one of which is self-control, living there so that we can control ourselves. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. We're living in a day and age where self and flesh rules the day. If it feels right, if it makes you happy and you desire it, go for it. Don't let anyone cramp your style. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You be you. Whatever your little heart desires, go for it. After all, feelings are real. We shouldn't suppress them because in so doing, we lose ourselves to something we are not. The lie can be summed up like this. Giving into the flesh leads to finding yourself. That's what the world tells us. 
That's what the world has everybody believing. But I would contend that the Bible teaches just the opposite, that just because it feels right makes you happy and we desire it doesn't mean that it's good for us. The truth is that when we give in to the flesh, we lose ourselves. Our God created to be selves. Our life that God created us to live selves. Our connection with God selves. We don't find ourselves when we give into the flesh. We lose ourselves. Matter of fact, isn't this the very first lesson that we are taught in the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of the fruit and she ate and she gave it to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees and of the garden. And if you read a little later, God says, where are you? Where are you? When, when they, when they did what felt right, when they did what looked right, when they did what they thought was going to make them happy, they didn't find themselves. They lost themselves. Where are you? Have you lost yourself? Because you've given in to what feels good and what, what makes you happy and, and what, 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 what is going to give you some adrenaline rush in your flesh. That's how you, you lose yourself. That's how, like them, you lose your intimacy with God. That's how you lose what God had prepared for you. They lost their paradise and they paid a high price for it. They lost their innocence. They lost their joy. They lost their connection to God. They lost a child. Cain killed Abel. Their family was turned upside down. They lost the privilege of living the life that God had designed for them. And life became harder, not happier. Listen to me. When you give in to the flesh, when you do what seems right, feels right, is good to you, when it's not what God defined as good, life doesn't become happier. Life becomes harder. It might give you a rush for a minute. The Bible says the pleasures of sin, right? Sin is pleasurable for a season. It's only fun at the beginning. But then afterward, it's not fun anymore. Adam had to now toil by the sweat of his brow. Eve now had to have uh, pain in childbirth. Neither of them would live in the garden, the wonderful paradise that God made for them. And the repercussions of their loss of self-control were felt by their family, their kids, and generation to come. It's a lie to say whatever looks right, feels right, and makes you happy, that's how you lose your, that's how you find your life. No, the truth is, that's how you lose your life. But the good news is, you can control yourself. Come on, look at somebody right now. Say, you can control yourself. Now say it like we would say it today. Control yourself, fool. <laughs> control yourself, fool, right? You can do it. You can do it. And when we come to our text, by the way, the King James of the word self-control is a word that kind of will make you laugh a little bit. It's usually a word for older people incontinent. People will be in 
continent. And yes, it does mean in a medical sense, someone who loses control of his or her bladder or bowels and as a result experiences involuntary accidents. That's literally what the, what the Greek word means. But the word incontinent more widely refers to the loss of control. The historical meaning of the word refers to someone who lacks moderation or one who lacks self-control in any area of their life resulting in indulgent behavior. The Greek refers to it as someone who has the, who has, who doesn't have the ability to control themselves or say no. And we see this lack of self-control in our society, don't we? We see it in so many different areas of our life. One area we see it in our life is in the area of food, right? The average, uh, you know, person is supposed to eat 2,000 calories a day. That's what they say. The average American eats 4,000 calories a day. We see it in our spending habits, both our individual and our national spending habits. We have a $23 million trillion debt, and, and it increases $45,000 per second. So when I looked this up and it was $23 trillion, it's actually way more than that right now. The fact that people between the ages of 20 and 24 declare bankruptcy more than they graduate from college. That's amazing, isn't it? We have 3 million senior citizens who are still paying back their student debt. What does this tell us? This tells us that we cannot control or we have bought into the lie of casting off control and we are spending too much. This lack of self-control is evidence in the pandemic of incivility. Have you ever noticed people can't hold their tongue anymore? People just say whatever they want to one another. However they want, they, they, they feel like they got a right. Oh, I'm just going to tell them. And some people actually think that it's a, it's a good characteristic to speak your mind. I'm just going to tell them. I'm, I'm just a very open person. No, you're just rude. Not open, Right? A pandemic of incivility, we think we could say, and we see it in our leaders, right? Right? Leaders should never have a loose tongue. Right? The Bible says leaders will be controlled, will be judged by a higher standard. And it talks about not all should desire to be preachers. Why? Because we sin in primary way is with our tongue. And as a leader, you gotta control yourself, fool, right? <laughs> Further evidence of this lack of self-control is the widespread acceptance in our society of mind-altering drugs as a socially acceptable way of dealing with stress. Right nowadays, well, you know, it's, it's the big deal. Smoke a joint. What's the big deal? Makes you, calms you down. Come on home at the end of a stressful day, just calm yourself down with a little alcohol. Right? And, and the reason why we're doing this is because we have cast off control. We think we have to go to things. The opioid addiction that is prevalent all around. All of this is a lack of self-control. I haven't even touched on the lack of self-control when it comes to sexual fornication, which is now paraded around openly on TV, movies, and even in public spaces. 
Our society is incontinent from young to old, and the cure is not pampers. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not dependent upon, it is, it, it is not depends, but it is depending on the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us and a surrendered life to Jesus. Contrary to what culture has led us to believe, we can and should control ourselves to keep our flesh in check. Listen to what the Bible says. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 16. I say, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, your spirit on the inside of you is telling you this is what you should do and this is what you should do. But when you don't control your flesh, you wind up doing what you don't want to do, right? And then it goes down in verse number 22. It says, but the fruit of the spirit. Anybody got fruit? The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And check this one out. Self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have exer- have crucified the flesh, which its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. The answer to exercising self-control and therefore not losing yourself, but rather walking in the fullness of the life that Christ has designed for us is to walk in the spirit or walk in the fruit of the spirit, one of which is self-control. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you and I can do exactly that in a world that has lost control. And therefore, we can live the abundant life that Christ came to give us. Do you know how much of the abundant life is sacrificed because of a lack of self-control? Think about this. People die prematurely all the time. Most premature deaths are due to physical ailments that are brought on by a lack of self-control when it comes to food. Say, Pastor, why'd you pick this one? Because I don't want you to think I'm perfect. Area I struggle with. Right? And so what happens, though, is we wonder. You know, we eat ourselves into oblivion, and we got high blood pressure. Like, I don't know why I have high blood pressure. I'm a Christian. This isn't supposed to touch me. You know, I'm under the blood. Jesus, Jesus paid for my healing on the cross. And all of a sudden, we begin to doubt God's word, when in fact, it's a lack of self-control in our lives. So much of what God has promised to us is given up because of a lack of self-control in our lives. And so God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And when we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, therefore we position ourselves to walk in the abundant life that Christ came to give us. And as we come to um, our text, I want to talk to you about how do you develop self-control so that you don't fall prey to the mindset of this world which says if it looks right, feels right, makes you happy, just do it. How do you develop that? And the words of Jesus are the best words in all the world on self-control and how to produce fruit. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn with me to John chapter number 15. John chapter number 15. As we're turning there, I want to set the stage for this. John chapter 15, these are some of the last words of Jesus to his disciples. It is Thursday night. Jesus is celebrating the last supper with them in the upper room. Um, he's, he's trying to let them know 
that he is going to be crucified. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. But the disciples are only hearing what they want to hear. Disciples haven't changed much, have they? It's funny because just be a preacher for a little while and you'll realize that most people hear only what they want to hear. Get married for a little while, you'll realize most people hear only what they want to hear. Right? And so the disciples, Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to, my body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be spilt for you. But they're thinking that tomorrow Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on the earth. It's the night before Passover, the time that everybody flocks into Jerusalem to celebrate the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. The day that they put the blood of the spotless lamb over their doorpost and the death angel passed over and God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. Interestingly enough, Jesus was crucified on Passover. Do you know why? Because his blood was spilt so that death, spiritual death, would pass over you and I. So that you you and I don't have to be separated from God. Because the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb without spot and blemish, became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. And it's the night before Passover. And he's having the supper, and they're all thinking, we are going to be part of the king's court. And if you read prior to John chapter 15 and 13, John chapter 13, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're selectively hearing. That's why the scripture says over and over again, when it comes to to the word of God, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says. Because we hear, we, we funnel everything that God says through our own personal experiences instead of getting before God and say, God, strip me of everything so that I can hear you. And so they're arguing who's going to be the greatest, and they're thinking he's going to set up his kingdom, he's going to deliver the Jewish people from Roman captivity tomorrow. I mean, he's going into Jerusalem. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. I mean, everybody's going to look at us. We're going to be big shots and all this kind of stuff. And then Jesus does something which begins to blow their paradigm. He takes a towel and he puts it on them. And he gets on his hands and his knees, and he begins to wash their feet. How can tomorrow's king be acting like today's house servant? They, they don't understand it. They're, they're kind of quiet. Peter, you know, he's got the big mouth. There's always one big mouth in the group, right? And, and Peter speaks up. He says, Lord, you can't do this to me. And Jesus says, unless, you know, I wash you, unless I wash you, you're not clean. And Peter says, wash all of me then. Wash. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. And then Jesus really begins to to kind of try to teach them and tell them what's happening. He's blowing their paradigm. And he says this to them. He says, before the night is out, someone's going to betray me. Before the night is out, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And they don't understand this. What you mean? Betray you. What you mean? Deny you. And the final blow of their expectation of a public kingdom comes when he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. What do you mean you're not going to talk with us anymore? What do you mean the ruler of this world is coming? I thought tomorrow you were setting up your kingdom. And so Jesus is trying to get that. They're not hearing. And he says, okay, come on, let's get out of here. Let's go to our spot. And their spot that they prayed was the garden. The garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. 
And so he takes them to their spot. They're following him and they, they're walking through the, 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 the garden of Gethsemane was an olive grove, but at the foot of the Mount of Olives, they also grow grapes. And so as they're going to their spot, they're walking through this vineyard. And on either side of the vineyard, there are these vines and there are these branches that produce fruit. And Jesus, I can see him, he probably pulls one of the branches off and he holds it in his hand. And here's what he says to them. His deathbed words, lean in. When somebody is dying and they tell you something, you lean in. Here's what he says. He says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me does not, uh, that does not bear fruit. He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. Now we've all heard a portion of that scripture before, right? The most famous of that is probably the seventh verse, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. And we selectively hear that verse. Here's how we hear that verse. Oh, yeah, I can just use God for whatever I need. Selective hearing. The verse is all about bearing fruit. The verse is all about that when you ask God to for things in the context of you bearing fruit for him, whatever you ask, he'll give it to you. And so when we come to the text, we find out that Jesus' words are about how to live a fruitful life, not on our terms, but on God's terms. Jesus' whole point is to remind us that our life as a Christian is all about producing fruit for him. If you read later on in John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. There it is again. The context is fruit. The context is not flesh, it's fruit. Most people use these scriptures to indulge their flesh instead of to bear the fruit that God has said our life is supposed to be about. Your life as a Christian is not about the indulgence of your flesh. It is about the production of fruit for the glory of God. That's what it is about. Three quick observations before I give you the keys to self-control that he tells. Number one, he says, he's the vine. He's the source of nourishment for the fruit. Everything in life will try to pry you away from the source of the fruit. And it'll all work through your flesh. Remember, the flesh is at war with the spirit. And giving into the flesh will rot your fruit because it will disconnect you from the root of the fruit, which is Jesus. That's why you need to control yourself. Jesus is the source. You can't produce fruit if you're not connected to Jesus. And I'm not just talking about saved. I'm talking about having a flow of connection with Jesus. Number two, we are the branches. We are the ones that are meant to bear fruit that brings God glory and honor. And I would contend that since the reason we are saved is to bear fruit, that when you are not bearing fruit, you're empty. You're barren. 
the Christian life really is not as satisfying as it has been promised to be. And there is a great disconnect in the body of Christ between us. Well, I don't quite understand, Pastor, why I don't find the fulfillment that everybody preaches about in my relationship with Jesus, and I've been saved for a long time. I can tell you why. Because you're not living to bear fruit. You're living for your flesh. And when you live for your flesh, you're unfulfilled. But when you live to bear fruit, you find fulfillment in Jesus. I love it when people say to me all the time, Pastor, we, we like the straight word. And then you preach the straight word, people would be like, no get no amens on that. Preach about how to be happy. Everybody like, amen, 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 amen. Number three, the father is the vine dresser. He's the one whose job is to get as much fruit from the branches as he can. His highest concern is not our happiness. Although, like any good father, he wants us happy. Right? So don't get it twisted. The body of Christ goes to extremes, right? Oh, yeah, God don't want you happy. God don't want you happy. God wants you miserable. That's not what I just said. God wants you happy, like any good parent. But he wants you happy in the right things. If your child came to you and said, I want you to give me some crack cocaine because that makes me happy, how many of you know that your child's happiness in that moment is not your highest concern? It's them not doing crack cocaine that is your highest concern. God's highest concern is that we bear fruit. His highest concern is not our comfort, although like any good parent, he loves to produce or to provide nice things for us. His highest concern is the fruit because the Father knows that the fruit is the way to the life he's designed for us. He knows that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control produce the life that we long for, the life that satisfies and brings him glory. There is no law against such fruit. There is nothing that can stand in the way of what God has designed for you if you will focus on bearing fruit. And the Father's job is to get as much fruit from you as he possibly can. So let me ask you a question as we contemplate how to exercise self-control and bear fruit. What fruit are you giving God from your life? What are the good works that people see from you that cause them to glorify your Father in heaven? Jesus in this parable, or not parable, in these words to his disciples, talks about four types of Christians. The no fruit Christians, the some fruit Christians, the more fruit Christians, and the much fruit Christians. And everybody... When you hear about that, I want to be a, I want to be a much fruit. I want to be a much fruit. I want to be, but when you see what is required to be a much fruit Christian, you realize most people land in either no fruit or some fruit. Four types of Christians and four secrets. And when he talks about these types of branches, Christians on how to exercise self control, look at the very first thing he says. John chapter 15, verse number two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I'm just pausing. Are you scared? Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Everybody hears that and go, oh, I guess I'm going to lose my salvation. That's not what it means. Matter of fact, I've pastored long enough to know that many of God's children feel barren, empty. They feel like the Christian life 
is not clicking for them. They have no passion for the things of God. They're going through the motions. The worship songs are just songs. The Bible is just words. But I want you to know that when we have this emptiness and when we're not bearing fruit, the God of heaven does not discard us. God doesn't discard God redeems, amen. I was going to say God recycles, but God does better than recycle. God redeems. Look at the text. It seems to say if you don't bear fruit, God just takes away your salvation or casts you aside. But nothing could be further from the truth. I think we've all gone through barren seasons where we're bearing no fruit for Jesus. And thank God he doesn't throw us away. Takes away cannot mean That he takes away or removes your salvation. Because in the next verse, verse number three, he says you're already clean because of the word I have spoken unto you. So you're clean but barren. In other words, you're saved but unfruitful. In a vineyard, new branches have a tendency to grow downward. They have a tendency to fall down and they have a tendency to lay in the dirt. That's how a new branch usually begins to, to grow. And what happens when a new branch starts growing down into the dirt Eventually, they'll hit the dirt, and its leaves will get dust all over them. And then when it rains, it'll literally get stuck in the mud. And so a vineyard dresser, that's the father, right? A vineyard dresser, what they do is they they walk up and down the rows of vines and branches, and they're specifically looking for a couple of things. One is branches that are stuck in the mud. And, and they're carrying these, these buckets of water for the purpose of finding those branches that are stuck in the mud. And when it finds those branches that are stuck in the mud, it takes the bucket of water and it washes the branch off. And after it washes the branch off, it picks it up, it takes it up out of the mud and it ties it up to a trellis so that it can bear much fruit. Aren't you glad that when you and I are stuck in the mud, God doesn't cut us off, God doesn't take us away, God lifts us up turns us around, puts our feet on solid ground. I thank the master. I thank the savior. I thank God. God doesn't discard us. He positions us so that we can bear fruit. The phrase is used to take up or take away many times in the scripture. One such time is when Jesus fed the 5,000 families and it says the disciples took away, same Greek word, 12 basketfuls of leftovers. When God lifts you up, the point is he wants fruit to come from your life, right? When Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus, it's the same Greek word, to take away, to take up. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, guess what he was saying? He was saying, this is the one who takes up. This is the one who lifts up. This isn't the one who discards. This isn't the one who gives up. This is the one who goes after the the one and leaves the 90 and 9. This is the one who meets the wayward child. This is the one who takes up the branch that is in the mud. God doesn't discard people. God picks up people. What does all this mean for the Christian? For the Christian, the mud is the sin. It's it's like we're trying to grow in mud. You can't grow down there. You can't produce fruit down there. 
You're going to die down there. But you are too valuable to God for him to leave you in the mud. So what does he do? He extends grace and mercy to you. He gives you and I a chance to get up out of the dirt and stop living in the sin. And herein lies the first key to self-control. The first key to self-control is to receive or let your heart be touched by the grace and the mercy of God. Grace and mercy should not be licensed to sin. Remember when the apostle Paul said, he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And he anticipated what everybody was going to say. And everybody's mind was like, well, then we ought to sin so that grace can abound. And he says, God forbid. What's he mean? Let grace touch your heart. Let God's mercy touch your heart. When you get away with something, don't think I could do it again. Think, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your anointing despite what I did. Thank you for your blessing despite where I've been living. God, because you've been so good to me, I'm going to stop doing it, not keep doing it. The mercy and the grace of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, Verse number four, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? One of the perfect examples of this in the Bible is Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph was sold into slavery, beat up by his brothers, stripped of his multicolor robe, which was a sign of favor, thrown into a pit. From the pit, he got lifted up out of the pit got sold to the gypsies, brought him into Egypt. His life was a wreck. It was ruined. They took from him everything that God and his father had put on him. He lost his family. He lost any chance of a career, everything. He was now going to be a slave, but he gets purchased by the right person. How many of you know God knows how to put the right people in your life at the right time? Don't Listen to me. I've, I've learned this. It doesn't really matter what people do or try to do to me. Because when the blessing of God is on you, when the calling of God is on you, there's nothing that they do to you that can stop what God has for you. And so they get, he gets picked up, he gets sold to the gypsies and purchased by a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of the entire estate. He is large and in charge, right? I mean, he all of a sudden, he's like, he's like managing an estate for a dignitary. He's probably getting paid big bucks. Life is going good. All of a sudden, his life begins to go in the right direction. But Mr. Potiphar, he's away a lot. And his wife, Mrs. P, the first lonely housewife in the Bible. Friends, make sure... Men, make sure your wife is not a lonely housewife. Lonely housewives are crazy. I'm done. I'm just playing. And the Bible says Joseph was good looking. And you got to be careful when you're good looking. A lot of you, this doesn't apply to. You got to be careful when I'm just playing. I'm just playing. And because Joseph was good looking, Mrs. P, she kept coming on to Joseph and kept coming on to Joseph, right? It was intense. Look at what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 39, verse number 7. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. You know your eyes are the window to the soul, right? Watch what you look at. 
And she said, lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what uh, is with me in his house, and he has committed all that is in his hand. He has into my hand. There is no one greater in the house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. Because you are his wife, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, he's been good to me. The master's been so good. He didn't have to put me in charge. He didn't have to bless me. He didn't have to trust me. He didn't have to give me a job. He didn't have to purchase me out of slavery. He didn't have to do any of those things. But because he did, that goodness, the memory of that goodness, the being cognizant of that goodness, it causes me to pause before I pounce. When you're ready to pounce, when your flesh is ready to go, pause and just take a moment to think about the goodness of Almighty God. He lifted us up. He turned us around. He put our feet on solid ground. I thank the Master. I thank the Savior. I thank God. He saved me from sin. He wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm not going to hell. He's given me a destiny. He saved my family. He saved my children. He healed me my body. He provided for me financially. I'm not doing this. Because he's been too good, too good to me. You know, the strength of the flesh is the moment. The strength of the flesh is the moment. In that moment, when the flesh is ready to go, it's almost like... The spirit wars against the flesh. The spirit's more powerful than the flesh. Let the goodness of God cause you to exercise self-control in your life. Second principle for how to exercise self-control is divine discipline. Now, before teaching this, let me say this. God doesn't discipline out of anger, right? And if you're a young parent, you have to realize never discipline out of anger. Because when you discipline out of anger, that's how things get out of control. You're not disciplining because you're, you hate your child. You're disciplining because you love your child, right? You want what's best for the child. And so your discipline has to be measured. And God disciplines us not because he wants to hurt us, but because he wants to bless us. Not because he wants to crush us, because, but because he wants to pull us out of the mud. So listen to what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse number five says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord or the discipline, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked of him for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons for what son is there whom a father does not chasten. But if you are without chastening, of which all have been partakers, then are you illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, watch this, afterwards it does what? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What is the father always after? The fruit. He's always after the fruit. And so what does the father do? He chastens not just not to crush, but to produce. He disciplines 
not to distance us, but to draw us close to him so that we can produce fruit in our lives. Discipline is a sign of love and sonship. Lack of discipline, let me speak to the world, to the culture today, not telling somebody they're wrong is truly unloving. Letting somebody do whatever makes them happy when that happiness is going to lead to straying from a connection to God, relationship with God, and ultimately to the life that God doesn't want them to have is the most unloving thing that anybody can do. So don't you dare let anybody tell you that for standing up for truth, you are not being loving. It is a lie from the pit of hell. But how does God discipline us so that we bear fruit? And how does this help us to exercise the fruit of the Holy Spirit? God disciplines progressively. Right? A lot of us think we do something wrong and there's God. Pop! You know, just waiting to get us. He disciplines progressively. Number one, rebuke, verbal. Don't do that. Stop. Put it down. Turn the other way. That ain't for you. That's going to hurt you, not help you. Rebuke. Second way, chasing. It's emotional. Anybody ever feel uneasy on the inside when you're doing something? Anybody ever feel uneasy on the inside when you're doing something? That's the chastening of the Lord. That's the father of spirits speaking to your spirit. That's him letting you know, no, 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 this ain't for you. Anybody ever just wonder, why have I lost all my joy all of a sudden? Why am I feeling overwhelmingly depressed all the time? Could it be that your emotions are giving you feedback? Could it be that that is conviction that has come upon your soul because God does not want you to continue doing what you are doing? And then the last one is to scourge. That's God's last resort when we are stubborn and choose to remain in sin. And this is when, and listen to me carefully, when God speaks to us in our pain. He doesn't cause the pain. But he speaks to us in the pain. That's when we experience the consequences of our poor choices, not by the direct hand of God, but the consequences of our poor choices. And what does God do? He begins to speak to us in that pain. He's got our attention. He's all ears now because we are now in a vulnerable position once again. We need God once again. It's amazing how we only will talk to God when we need God. And so C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, and he shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so God disciplines progressively. And notice what it says. How does this help self-control? Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise it. Let it turn you. Ain't nothing worse than a stubborn child. I've talked to parents, I don't know what in the world I'm going to do. I've tried this, and 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 they won't listen, they won't do, they won't want. And what happens at that point? They're going to have to learn. And they go, and they do what they want to do. Consequences come, and now they learn. Don't despise 
the chastening of the Lord. Let it cause you to be self-controlled in your behavior. Third secret to self-control. Notice the next portion of the text. John chapter 15, verse number 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So these are the some fruit to the more fruit Christians. And what is this? This is pruning. It means to thin. It means to reduce. It means to, to cut off. With God, the secret for more is less. Actually, it's a secret for success in life, right? Don't do everything but focus on a few things. That's why our life needs to be led by heavenly vision. The Bible says without a vision, people cast off restraint. What do they do? They do everything. And we have this tendency to be people who shoot in every single direction. And the reason why we shoot in all sorts of different directions is because we are looking for the American dream instead of following the God-given dream. And so because we're looking for the American dream, we'll do this. Amen. Maybe we can make some money here. 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 But God has given us all vision for our life. And that vision should guide us. That vision should keep us focused so that we are not doing everything with God. Less is more. And the reason why less is more is so that we bear fruit. When you are expending your energies on all sorts of things, what happens is the focus you need to bear fruit on the things that God has called you to is take, is, is diverted and you don't bear fruit. You just become a person that, that kind of does everything. And by the way, every time I say this, I gotta be careful because then people come to me and I say, you know, Pastor, I, I really heard your message and, you know, uh, I'm just doing too much. Sorry, I can't serve no more. Sheep. That's not a compliment, by the way. When God calls us sheep. The things to pull out of your life is not the things you do for God. The things to pull out of your life are the things that you don't do for God. Pruning is like vision. It's where God cuts away the things in our life that are not part of his vision for our life. They don't have to be bad things. They are just not the things that God wants us focused on. Listen to this excerpt from a book on on tending grapes. Because of a grape's tendency to grow so vigorously, a lot of wood must be cut away each year. Grapevines can become so dense that the sun cannot reach into the area where the fruit should form. Uh, Left to itself, grape plants will always favor new growth over more grapes. So from a distance, it appears to be luxurious growth and an impressive achievement. But up close, it's an underwhelming harvest. So what does the vine dresser has to do? He has to begin to cut away so his purposes, which is more fruit, can begin to emerge. What does this mean for us and how is this a secret to self-control? God gives us a vision for our life and then we start adding all these other things that seem impressive in the world's eyes to us, both good and bad, healthy and unhealthy, and they block the son, the S-O-N, the savior from having access to our lives and us following vision, his vision for our lives. And so God has to prune them away. Pruning is how God answers prayers like God use me in a greater way. And when you pray that prayer, here's how God responds. Okay, that's got to go. Pruning is when God said, that's got to go. We, we need we need you to give that one right there to me. Give that one to me right there. And for some of you, it's relationships that got to go. Not that those people are worse than you, 
But those people are stopping the sun from getting into your life. For others of you, it's hobbies. It's got to go. I used to play golf two, three times a week, six hours a day. Do you know what kind of impediment? I'm not hurt, hating on nobody who plays golf, by the way. But for me, it had to go. And the reason why it had to go is because it was too much time to something that was not part of the vision. God, I mean, God doesn't have no problem with us having fun and playing golf and all, but it was not part of the vision that God had for my life. And I'm going to show you in just a minute that the more mature you get in God, the more selective you have to be about what you give your time to because it becomes all about the fruit. And so... Pruning is when God says, this has got to go. These things aren't necessarily bad things, again. And pruning is not the same as discipline. Discipline is about sin. Pruning is about self. Discipline is about the bad things that got to go. Pruning is about the things standing in the way of God that got to go in your life. So that you can be who God has created you to be. Can I push this just a minute more? Listen to the second excerpt about vineyards. The vine's ability to produce growth increases every year, but without intensive pruning, the plant weakens and the crop diminishes. Mature branches must be pruned hard to achieve maximum results. What does this mean? It means the more mature you are, the more that's got to go. This is why most people are no fruit and some fruit Christians. Because maturity takes God has to be first in every area. I'm preaching so good right now. I'm feeling the Holy Ghost all over me. This is where God makes a hard push to climb the ladder of importance in your life. This is where God starts pulling down by the feet everything that is above him on the ladder. That's got to go, and that's got to go, and that's got to go, and that's got to go. This is where God begins to say, you know that marriage you love more than me? It's got to take second place. You know those children you love more than me? It's got to take second place. He said, God would want to be second place to those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, you remember Abraham? What did Abraham love most? Isaac. God said, got to talk about this one. He said, go and sacrifice him. Now, this wasn't God saying, kill your son for me. Abraham came from a culture of the sun and moon worshipers that they sacrificed their children. So God was actually teaching him a lesson because remember God provided the ram in the thicket that he was not like the other gods. I don't need your children. I don't need your, I don't need those kind of sacrifices. Why? Because I am the ultimate sacrifice for you. I don't want you to sacrifice your children for me. I sacrificed my only son for you. I loved you that much. But the point was, Abraham, you can't have something that's more important than me because, Abraham, my vision for your life is to be the father of many nations, to bear much fruit. And so everything that you get your value from, everything that is important to you, it must take a back seat to me. For Gideon, it was his army. And so what did God say? We can't go to war with 30,000. We got to go to war with 300. We got to prune. We got to thin it out. Will you surrender to God's pruning? so that you can excel in your self-control and bear more fruit. And the last key to self-control is this this word that we don't really understand. It's, it's, It's the word abiding. John chapter 15, verse number 5 says, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. 
For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you desire. It shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you're, so that, uh, so you will be my disciples. Now, when he says that you'll be withered away and thrown into the fire, it doesn't mean hell. It means the life that I've created for you will be a waste. Wasted life. So many of us, we're wasting our life. We're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to go, God, look what I accomplished. I accomplished this and I accomplished this and I accomplished this. and I accomplished. God's going to be like, but you didn't do what I put you on the earth to do. You wasted your life. Could have had so much more. What's the difference between keys one, two, and three and key four? In key one, two, and three, grace and mercy, discipline, and pruning, God is the initiator. God is the one who is dressing the vine. God is the one who is, who is doing things, who is, who is the initiator <coughs> to get you to produce more fruit. But in key number four, we must initiate. Abiding is when you and I cannot get enough of God and that all we want to do is run to him. All we want to do is spend time with him. This is what David meant in Psalm 42, verse number one, when he said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. This is where we come to the place where we want more of God, not because we have to, but because we want to. We want more worship because the four songs on Sunday just are not enough. We want more of the Bible because the message the preacher preaches is just not enough. We want more in the presence of God because just a little dab won't do you. We got to get more of God. And so we run to him. We, We abide in him. You know, of all the miracles Jesus did in the Bible, one really stands out among all the others. Not because it was any less important or any less spectacular, but because in every miracle Jesus did, Jesus went to the person. When blind Bartimaeus called out, Jesus said, bring him to me, and he met him. Jesus was looking at him. He was facing him. When Jairus said, my daughter's at the point of death, Jesus went to the house. When he freed the woman at the well, he said, I must go through Samaria. He was always going to. But there was one miracle where Jesus was walking away. He was going in that direction. There was this woman, she had an issue of blood for 12 years. She suffered many things of many physicians. Didn't get any better, but rather grew worse. She was in such a place in our life. She said, my only cure is Jesus. I got to get to him. No matter what it takes. 
I got to touch the hem of his garment. No matter how hard it is, no matter what is standing in my way for us, no matter how difficult and busy life gets, I got to get to Jesus. I got to make time for Jesus. If I got to crawl on my hands and feet, if I got to get up at the crack of dawn and that's the only peace I got, if I got to stay up late, if I got to take a break in the middle of my day, somehow, some way, I got to get to Jesus because I want more of him and more of him and more of him and more of him. It's not because I have to, it's because I want to. And even though Jesus is not the one that is initiating this time, I want to go to him. I want to knock on his door and say, hey, I know you probably wasn't expecting me. I know I just saw you a couple minutes ago, but I love you so much. I wanted to come back into your presence. I wanted to spend some more time with you. And something happens. Something happens when, when you initiate relationship and intimacy with Jesus. Something supernatural. Jesus, when that woman touched him, said, who touched me? Power left me. Something that not just touched what nobody else could touch, but something that went throughout all of our inner being. See what happens when you abide in Christ. When you as the deer pants for the water, go to Jesus. Is there supernatural power that is released in your spirit and suddenly your fruit becomes exponential. And you want so much more of God. And when you're in the presence of God, all you're like, this this thing? Seriously, devil? You want me to exchange this for that? I mean, we are bad at exchanging. A five-minute high for an earthly destiny and a heavenly reward. Don't sound like a good deal to me. Sound like a real bad deal to me. Why do we get tricked so easy? Because we're not connected to the vine. Don't give up what God has for you. Because you can't exercise self-control. Because the truth of the matter is, you can't control yourself. Let's sing this song. Would you stand to your feet? Take a moment and worship in the presence of God.